Ephesians 2 And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which Ephesians 2 And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2 And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, 
Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There for we are His workmanship, created for good works. November has been designated, among other things, Adoption Awareness Month. And I was unaware it was Adoption Awareness Month until Wendy's offered free Frosties for a year. But now I know it is Adoption Awareness Month. And so uh, just kind of as a side to what I have prepared for this morning, think back to verse 10 that was just read for We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And for some of us, those good works look like fostering and adoption. As I reflected on adoption this week, uh, I began to think of the many reasons why some kids are adopted into new families. For some... It can seem like an obligation when our nieces or nephews or grandchildren find themselves in a bad situation. For some, adoption fills an emptiness in the affections of adults. There's a hole in my love that needs to be filled. For some, it is driven by a sudden and an overwhelming compassion for a child that we encounter. In the case where God adopts us into his family, he is under no obligation. There is no deficiency in his affection that needs to be made whole. His adoption of us is a simple overflow of his riches and his kind and his gracious heart. I thought for today that we may look at Ephesians chapter 2 and see the sovereign way that God showers us with his goodness and then generally uses us to accomplish good in this world. Ephesians chapter 2, I encourage you to open a Bible in front so that you can see that the the thoughts come from the Word. It's a description of a time when we were each unaware of God's goodness. When we are unaware of God's goodness because of our spiritual death. 
For the first three verses read, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Because apart from Christ, most people fit into at least one of these three categories. The first category is those that are simply pursuing what everybody else is doing. We want to fit in with the crowd. We take our cues from those around us. The things that they consider important is what we consider important. If they wear flannel, we wear flannel. If they wear stripes, we wear stripes. If their skirts are long, our skirts are long. If their skirts are short, I don't wear skirts. It's simple that many of us are simply pursuing what everybody else is doing. The second life aim is some of us are pursuing power. They pursue power through spirits, through human religions, through their own effort. And thirdly, some of us are pursuing the passions of whatever makes me happy. Whatever makes me happy is what I ought to be doing. Three life goals. My grandfather was an avid fisherman and a hunter. But my dad never developed the love for these sports, so unfortunately, I am not very good at fishing. And I've never gone hunting, but with one exception. See, I I learned of these places that are called trout farms. At a trout farm, even I can catch my limit. Because trout farms are built as the perfect place for fish to breed and to multiply. The water is kept at just the right temperature. The feed is spread in the pond at consistent intervals. And when the water gets too crowded, some fish are magically relocated to other lakes. To a fish... A trout farm sounds like a perfect environment. But the whole purpose of their existence is to grow and to multiply so that they can be caught and eaten. And many in this world are living in existence where they are growing to be caught by the prince of the air. In many respects, that is the condition of humanity. We are fat, dumb, and happy, and we don't even realize the natural destiny of where we are going. Because if we are pursuing these three different aims, the reality is the Scripture tells us that we do have one common condition. I see it both in verses 1 and 3. And you were dead in trespasses and sins and were called by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. 
Many have asked, what's wrong with being happy? Doesn't God love all of us equally and desire our happiness? If happiness is the only goal, we look like the mice in those jar or the trout in the farm. See, all of the farm-raised fish are happy, and the wildlife manager treats all the fish equally, but that doesn't mean that the fish are in a good situation. And apart from Christ, all of us are by nature under wrath. Whether we are single or married, divorced, remarried, or consider ourselves gender fluid, we are all separated from God and in need of change. Just because God loves me does not mean that my life is free from the need of repentance, forgiveness, and transformation. These first three verses are a grim reality, but they're not the end of the story. Because I love the first two words of the next verse. What are the first two words of verse 4? But God. Amen. But God adopted us by His mercy. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In these verses, I see that we learn two things. The first thing we learn is who God is. That God is rich in mercy and God is great in love. When I think of rich, there are different levels of rich. I have some friends, both here and in other states, who have done pretty well with their finances. They've experienced the generous hand of God, and they will never have to work another day in their lives. These are the people that most of us would consider rich. But there's a whole other level of rich, where people earn millions of dollars each year and whose bonuses are more than I will make in a lifetime. There are normal rich, and there are super rich. Super rich that build rockets for people just to leave the atmosphere and return. These are those that we call super rich. And just as the super rich are not comparable to the rich that are comparable to us, we read that God is super rich in mercy. Not that he's just us with the bonus, but he is super rich in his mercy. There's no way he could spend out his mercy if he had all eternity to do it. And he does. I know some people who are giving. They're loving. They're merciful. But there are others who take that giving, loving mercy to a whole other level. 
And God's mercy and love even eclipses their kindness. Think of the richest person you know, take it to the next degree, and God's riches are even greater than that. Take the kindest, most giving person that you know, take it to the next degree, and God's love is even greater than that. Who God is, is He is rich in mercy and He is great in love. And then verses 5 through 7 tell us not only who God is, but what God did. The first thing that God did is He resuscitates, He made us alive. You know, we tend to think of religious conversion as a person who rationally weighs all of the options and then makes a decision to accept or reject Christ. That's usually the way we think of evangelism. I'll tell you the good news, think about it, investigate it, and make a decision, do you want to follow Christ or not? But the reality, according to this text is that instead of presenting an option, it's more like a paramedic rolling up on an unresponsive body. The gospel is the paramedic that arrives when we are flatlined. The last time that I recertified in CPR, we were told to ask, can you breathe? And if there is no response, we are to yell out, no response, starting CPR and tell somebody to call 911. We were never trained to ask, do you want me to start CPR? Because if they're flatlined, they're incapable of giving a response. While we were dead, while we were under God's wrath, but God. The first thing he does is he resuscitates. In a similar manner, when we were spiritually dead, God chose to impart life and to give us the capacity to respond to him. Without asking us, he put the paddles on our heart, yelled clear, and gave the shock. But God, he resuscitates us. And after he resuscitates us, he doesn't just leave us on the path. It then says that he promotes, he raises us up. There there was a common notion among the people of Ephesus at the time that Paul wrote this, that there were three heavens. The first heaven is what you will see if you go out the doors at the end of the service, the atmosphere. The second heaven was the realm of angels and demons, a, a spiritual existence outside of our atmosphere. But there was a third heaven, which was the highest heaven where the gods would dwell. And so Paul writes that not only has God resuscitated us, he has raised us up to that highest heaven where he dwells. He's seated us with him in the highest of the heavens. To those who had been pursuing Power in the spirituality and the religion of Ephesus, a promise is made that God has transferred believers to the highest heaven with Christ. He resuscitated us, He promoted us, and thirdly, He displays us. 
that he might show what is around us. In high school, I was involved in the band and the choir. And for several years, I was never promoted to the highest band, which got uniforms and the privilege to march at the football games and the area parades. For two years in a row, the people who were next to me down the row of priorities promoted and I was left behind. Isn't anybody going to give me an aww? Until my senior year. And the senior year, I was promoted and I was given my uniform. But perhaps the highest honor of my whole school career was when a yearbook photographer asked to do a photo session with me to get some images that would represent the whole music department in the yearbook. I was given life, I was promoted, and then I was put on display. And God resuscitates us, he raises us up, and then he puts us on display for all to see. My band experience is similar to the honor that is described in these verses. God gives us life, God promotes us to a place of honor, and God puts us on display for all the lesser spiritual beings to see what His goodness really looks like. And the third thing I see in today's text is that not only are we adopted because of His goodness, but we become a project of his goodness. He resuscitates, promotes, and puts us on display for a reason. The reason is, is that we are recipients of grace, and he wants all created beings to see how amazing grace truly is. For the scripture says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Now this word, it is by grace, appears both back in verse 5 and here in verse 8. We are saved by grace. Someone forgot, I think that's my phone that I forgot to turn off. (laughs) put, Put him on speaker and see who called church this morning. Actually, after four rings, it should go away. (laughs) Oops. It's my daughter. I'll have to talk to her later. She knows this is church time. It is by grace that you have been saved. Now, there are several ways that Paul could have communicated grace. But he actually uses a point-counterpoint to describe this. Have you ever been listening to a story and you were told, he doesn't just love us one time, he doesn't just love us two times, but he loves us three times. Why would someone go through all the extra words of saying, not once, not twice, but three? It's because the storyteller really wants to underscore the significance of that great love. He could have simply said, God loves us. He could simply say, it's by grace you have been saved. But instead of simply saying it, he says, he first says, it's not of your own doing. 
to set up the counterpoint, and then he reveals the point. It's a gift. It's not the money we put into the offering. It's not the time that we get wet. It's not the time that we commit to a church. It's not the time that the preacher says words over us. It is not your own doing. It's a gift. That's what grace is. It's not a result of works. And if we are recipients of His great grace, then we are also told that we are a masterpiece. For we are His workmanship. This word workmanship only appears twice in the New Testament and just under 30 times in the version of the Old Testament that would have been used during Jesus' day. And this word masterpiece sounds like our word poem. We are his poema. And the difference between a poem and prose is that when you are writing a poem, each word is intentionally and meticulously chosen and placed in such a way that it communicates a specific message. See, you can tell a story, like a three-year-old telling a story, and he goes on, he says, oh, and I forgot, and you go back and you fill in some of the gaps, and then he moves forward and says, oh, but I forgot, I need to tell you this. See, in a prose, in a story, you can always go back to the, oh, and I forgot. But in a poem, each word is meticulously and intentionally chosen and placed for a purpose. And it's that poema it's that masterpiece where you have been intentionally chosen and placed for a purpose the idea is that you are not an accident you didn't just happen to become a child of god you are god's doing he chose you for a purpose Kind of like the little girl in this clip. Merry Christmas, Annie Warbox. You're adopted. We're a family, and we found Sandy. Soul of her soul. Now, 
And if Annie ain't just Annie anymore, you aren't just you anymore. You have been intentionally chosen by God. You are His masterpiece, created for a purpose. As a matter of fact, now you're wondering what DAP was. We are each designed according to a plan. You're not just you. You are a masterpiece of God created for His purpose. When we are given life, we are given a new purpose to walk in good works. Acts that were designed specifically to benefit others, which are characteristic of God. We contrast this back to verse 3. We used to live for selfish desires. But in verse 5, we are given life so that in verse 10, we can show goodness to others. You have received goodness so that you can show goodness. Why doesn't God just take us up to heaven when we get saved? Because he has a plan to use us in this world. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, we're introduced to the idea that it is because of God's care that he disciplines us to obey and to depend upon him. Deuteronomy 8, the discipline of the wilderness was to prepare the Jewish people to represent God to the nations. God said, do this, this, and this, and avoid this, this, and this, and people will know that you belong to me. And so if we do this and we avoid that, people will know that we belong to God. But even after private tutoring for 40 years, they still didn't get it. Their first battle, they crossed into the land. They were told to do something strange around Jericho, and it worked. But what happened in the very next city? Achan decided, eh, I'll do things my way instead of God's way. God had chosen Abraham's descendants to teach the people of that region that he was the one true God. And God has chosen us to teach the people of this region that he is the one true God and that salvation only comes through his son, Jesus Christ. God has called us to accomplish the great commission, make disciples of all people, by obeying the, grand, the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors yourself. Because if we love God and our neighbors, you will be amazed at how fulfilled you will find yourself being in the middle of God's plan. We are designed according to a plan, and we participate, and when we live in that plan, our lives have purpose and meaning, and they are rich. If you are here this morning, and you're still pursuing the plain life, the power of spirits in the pursuit of your own pleasure... Today can be your opportunity to exchange the plain life for the adopted life. To be adopted into God's good family. 
I or any of our elders would love to sit down and show you from the scriptures how you can be born again. To realize that God is ready to um, revive you, to raise you up, and to put you on display. But I would suspect that the largest percentage of the people in this room and watching online are those that have already crossed over into God's family. Those who have already been resuscitated, promoted, and displayed in the heavenlies. However, we have not been as active as we could have been or should have been to show God's goodness to others, to walk in the good works that God prepared beforehand for us to walk. So before you put away your sermon guide, and we sing the final song, if you want to find it, it's number 313. And I'm sure that this tune that's in my head is the one that I'm going to ask Gene to play here in a moment. Before you put away your sermon guide, before we sing that song, I'm going to ask you to write down a name. Who is it that God wants you to show his goodness? And what does he want you to do today that will tell that person that God is the source of goodness?